The most important thing that we have together is the Word of God, um, and this pastor will disappear. I'm going to leave. I don't know when, um, but I'm going to retire. I don't know when, but I'm going off the scene. That's what happens. Everybody leaves. They come and they go, Hobbs. They come and they go. That's what happens. But the thing that doesn't go away, that what endures forever is the word of God. All flesh is like grass. It's here and then it's gone. But the word of the Lord abides forever. So it matters that we look at it and read it. If you have yours, we're in James chapter 2. You have your journal, perhaps. What's the job of a pastor, someone has said over the years, is to... um, Comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That's what I was told when I was training to be a pastor. The word of God is, is a comfort to those who are afflicted. And in sometimes it afflicts those who are too comfortable. In our circle of worship leader uh, before the service start, one of the guys from the text booth, John, said, you know, James is like a punch in the face. And there's a sense in which it really does hit us hard in its directness. And there's a part of this passage today that is intended to confront where we are. But one of the reasons that I think God has been pleased at Calvary over all these years is that we haven't lowered the bar. We haven't just kept saying, you know, said more and more, oh, that's enough, that's enough, that's enough. We've taken the word of God and say, what does the word of God says? It says this. So we do it. And when you say that the word of God has a word to say about sexual ethics, about the nature of humanity, about life being from God, and you suddenly say, abortion is wrong, he created them male and female, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And suddenly in one category of our society, and you say Thus saith the Lord. That is a confrontation to the culture. And there's a thousand other categories that the Bible speaks to. But one of the things that I think has has been part of what makes it great to be part of this community is It doesn't matter what men thinks about us. It matters what God thinks about what we're saying about what he said. And so what has God said? And this is one of those passages that is sort of going to say, okay, do you really, are you really a Christian? We've said this over the last couple of weeks, but being a part of uh, the book of James for the last five weeks, it's like, do you, are you a doer of the word or are you just a sayer of the word? Do you profess that you're a Christian or are you really a Christian? And there have been these tests and we're about to enter into another test beginning uh, with verse 14. And this is the test, essentially. Faith 
that does not have works is dead. In other words, it's not saving faith. So my desire this morning is that you will be appropriately arrested by the Holy Spirit to consider whether your faith is real, but that you will not be inappropriately shaken if you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation. I don't want you to go away shaken, but I'd be cool if you went away confronted with the truth about God so that you say, okay, I need to know whether I really know Jesus. And that's what this text tells us. So let's look at verse 14. Verse 14 of chapter 2 says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? In the way the Greek is constructed, it anticipates a negative answer. Can that faith save him, everybody? No. Now, this is a confrontation to us. What good if you say you have faith, but you don't have works? Now, the works are not named here, but they are illustrated. And the works are the, are the manifestation that the faith in us is showing up in our life in ways that God calls us to. So here's the illustration. Verse 15 if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving, I circled that in my notes, giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? The implied answer is it's no good. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, the works that are anticipated in James' mind could be keyed back to our earlier um, reference to verse 8 of this same chapter. I think what's anticipated is that the royal law of God, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is anticipated to be the manifested fruit of a life that has been saved by Jesus a response that may require faith in the person who sees someone in a destitute condition. How am I going to help that person? I'm going to have to help that person by giving some of the things I have to them, which may mean that I will go without, but I will trust God, but I'm going to meet their needs because verse 8 says, this is the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and I know God. I love God. God loved me when I was his enemy. So here's a stranger in need. I am going to flow the love of God to that person because that is the normal response of a person who loves God. God loves that person, destitute, without clothes or food, and so God would love to meet them, but God is here through us, so he's asking us to meet them. Everybody get that? It's just the natural manifestation that I love God, so he's going to work through me, and there are going to be manifestations that my life is connected to God in such a way that I'm going to do what God would do if he were here. It's not only talk, or maybe what 
James is saying, this is only talk. If you say this, but you don't do this, you don't have love. And Jesus said, my disciples love. By this will all men know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Who's my neighbor? Anyone in need. That's the illustration of what it is to have works that emerge out of a faith that is alive and not dead. Paul put it this way. We're going to look, uh, by the way, so some of you are going to be thinking about these words from James. That if you don't have works, you don't have faith. And how do they gel with what Paul said? And that's why this is going to take an hour. But that, we're going to look at that in a minute. Here's what Paul said in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything which, by the way, those are a work. As if you would get circumcised and then God would love you. They don't count for anything. But what does count is faith. Faith in Christ alone. And then the last phrase, working through love. Paul said what really matters is not the works of circumcision or any other pre-conversion work, but it's that you have faith in Christ and it works its way out in love. He said something similar to the Thessalonians, but we won't look at it. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is the argument James is making. Someone will say, and then I think the someone is himself. I think he's sort of saying to them, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Can you? Can you show me your faith? James is the show me saint. He, he says, show me. Show me your faith. Can you show me your faith right now without works? You can talk about it, but you can't show it. And he says, I will show you my faith by my works. That's the argument that he's making. You can't tell if a person is a Christian without the manifestation of what's going on in their life. In one sense, but not entirely, um, we are what we do. What we do is a reflection of who we are. And that's the argument that James is making here, that it can't be shown that you have faith apart from how you live your life. It can be claimed and professed, which it often is, but it cannot be shown. 19, do you believe that God is one? You do well. You believe that God is who he says he is, that he's one? You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I think here's another line of his reasoning is you might have really good theology. You might be orthodox in what you believe. You believe God is one. This is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. You might have good theology, but all it is is intellectual assent, which even the demons have, the demons know who God is. The demons know their end. The demons know that they're in a losing game. And they shudder. 
And you could go through all of life knowing good theology, but never placing your faith in Jesus Christ. This is a terrible danger in a church like ours where we always teach the Bible and you're here again and again, the truth of God, and you get it in your head and you get on a theological hobby horse. We might say the most important thing to me is the age of the earth. And I love to argue about the age of the earth. Is it new? Is it old? Oh, I love eschatology. Is it pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Is it uh, whatever, all the others? Or you say, I'm a Calvinist, or I'm an Arminian. Oh, well, let's have an argument about that. Wouldn't that be fun? Sure would. No, it really wouldn't. It really wouldn't, because our church allows you to be here and love Jesus and worship him if you think the tribulation is before or after, or the millennial before or after. And frankly, if you think the earth is old or young, you can worship Christ here and serve him. You know what I mean? I like theology. I'm fairly precise in what I believe. I like to convince people the things that I know. There are certain things that are not negotiable. But you can have good theology and not know Jesus. Knowledge just puffs up, but love edifies. And love is the mark of a person who knows Jesus. You see a brother and sister in need of daily clothes, say, oh, yes, be warm and filled. Have a good day. And then you go on your merry way, unaffected by the needs of other people. How does the love of God abide in you? That's the question, the convicting question. Anyway, verse 21, now he's going to illustrate it again. Here's illustration of faith and works. Was not Abraham our father justified, declared righteous by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You have to go to Genesis 22 to look at that story. So write that in the margin. If you're not familiar, some of you are new to church and you're just catching up with what does all this mean? Abraham is an Old Testament patriarch, someone everybody looked up to. And God called him in Genesis 15 and told him in Genesis chapter 15, brought him outside. And he said to Abraham, look up toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And God said to Abraham, that's what your offspring is going to be like, like the stars of the sky. And it says in Genesis 15, 16, Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God saw Abraham listen to the words of God when God told Abraham, your descendants are going to be like these stars. And Abraham said, I believe. God saw his heart, and he said, you're righteous. You trust me. You trust in me with all of your heart. A few chapters later, God asks Abraham to go and take his son, his only son, that took quite a bit of work to get to, and then take him out and put him on the mountain and to sacrifice him to God. And just as about as Abraham is to slay his son, God says, stop. Now I know that you trust me. That's what's in mind when James says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son? You see, that faith was active alongside his works, and faith was, circled in my notes, was completed by his works. 
And the scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Abraham's sacrifice, or almost sacrifice of his son, displayed his faith. It completed his faith. It was faith on the edge that said, if this is what you ask me to do, God, I will do it because I believe in you. Is everybody listening to that? I mean, does it get any more startling for God to ask a father to take his son and, and sacrifice him to display his love for God, and he does it? Did that take faith? Oh. And now God asks us, be faithful to your wife. I can't. It's so hard. Nah. That doesn't... You know what I mean? It's like, what does God ask us to do? Just follow him in obedience. Serve me. All the things that God asks that we have to do by faith, we look at this example, and here's an example of someone whose faith in God was demonstrated in activity, and the activity was the verification that the faith was really real. I love that it's there for us in this way. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command. Doing is a response to real faith. Now, that's Abraham, the patriarch, the father of the faith in the Old Testament. Look at verse 22, 24. So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, let's use an illustration on the other end of the spectrum, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Okay, so watch what James is doing. Abraham, father of the faith, father Abraham had many sons. And then Rahab, Rahab is not a Jew. She's a Gentile. She's not a father. She's a woman. She's not a patriarch of faith. She's a prostitute. You get, the, you get what he's doing? Someone of great standing, someone forgotten in society, and he calls them both and says they are both saved by the same way, faith in God. And she is held up here as a model of exemplary faith, a broken forgotten life that God saw and saved by grace and her faith in what God said. She believed him and God saved her. And then she responded to God's saving work by doing what is attributed here as a work of faith in which she saw the spies. Again, this is another passage uh, but you'd have to go to Joshua chapter 2 to read the story that Israel was sending spies into the city of Jericho, and she protected two of the spies when the king wanted to kill them, and they were protected, and then they were sent out safely back. And the Bible says of her, she was a great woman of faith, and she trusted God, and so she 
received the messengers, and then sent them out. You can read the whole story in Joshua chapter 2. But this is the woman who is the great-grandmother of David, King David. This is the woman who's in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. This is the woman who is in Hebrews chapter 11, cited with all the people who had great faith. Abraham, Rahab, what's James's point? Social economic status in the world doesn't matter. What matters is your faith in God that works itself out in love as the evidence. Here's how the passage ends then in verse 26. For apart from the body, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Dead faith, faith without evidence, is like a cadaver. Okay, let's cut to the chase because we're going to wrap it up. What James is saying is, you better be sure that if you call yourself a Christian, you've got some evidence to sort of back up your profession. Now, the way this collides with Paul is significant. And I want to see if I can put it together. But dead faith has no works. And faith without works is dead. And so faith without works is not saving faith. Which is why Jesus said, you know, if a tree is there and there's no fruit on it, we cut it down. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. So it's intended to be a, Catch us. That's why Paul said, examine yourselves and see whether you're in the faith. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. If Christ is in you, and you have faith in him to have saved you from your sin, you are saved, and it will be evident in your life by the way in which you live, because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature and old things are passed away, there's evidence for it. Let me see if I can summarize it, because you will know with me that Paul most powerfully taught in the book of Romans that that the point of salvation is it's by grace through faith in Christ alone. Everybody said, that's right. Romans 3.24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ. Romans chapter 4, excuse me, Romans chapter 4 says um, Abraham is used as a model for, for his works didn't save him from Paul's argument, and you'll have to tease that out in Romans chapter 4. It simply says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 8.1 says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So if you believe in Christ, you're good. Unless there's no evidence that you've believed in Christ by your life, and then it cause you to say, well, do I really know him? Has something really happened in my life? Am I really a new creature? Now, John MacArthur has made a, a really brilliant illustration that Paul, who says 
saved by grace through faith, and James saying, you better show your works, are really could be understood this way, that they are standing not in a face-to-face confrontation with their theological perspective, James and Paul, even though Martin Luther said this is, you know, this is a terrible epistle of James. Paul and James are not standing face-to-face confronting each other, but they're back-to-back fighting two common enemies of the faith. Paul opposes works righteousness to become a Christian, whereas James opposes easy believism in which you just say a prayer and you're good and you can live however the heck you want to. I meant to do that. Like, oh, I have my fire insurance. I walked an aisle. I prayed the prayer. I prayed the prayer, but nothing ever happened. I tried Jesus, but it never worked. But at least I prayed the prayer, and now I'm going to heaven. You should check. Because the point is, you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and your life is so radically transformed by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God and the total forgiveness of Jesus that you cannot help but be one who follows Jesus, abides in the word, loves other disciples, and bears much fruit for the glory of God and prove your discipleship that you really are a follower of Jesus. That's the point. Okay, I'm almost done. Here's what Tim Keller said. I love this quote. Christianity is the only religion where the verdict leads to the performance rather than the performance leading to the verdict. In other words, when you become a Christian and you trust in Christ alone, what is the verdict? Justified by faith, declared righteous before God. And my verdict that God says through Christ I'm born again from above. He lives in me. I belong to him. That is the verdict that God gave, and then the performance begins. The the evidence begins to be shown. The works are manifest. Why? Because God said, you're mine. Every other religion is, I'm performing. I'm performing, God. I'm trying really hard, and I hope one day you'll say to me, Okay, good enough. No. Christianity, the verdict happens through faith in Christ, and then evidence shows. Um, Douglas Moo, a writer and theologian, said the difference between Paul and James consists in the sequence of works and conversion. Paul denies any efficacy to pre-conversion works, but James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. Get that? It's just where, where do you see works? All my works are as filthy rags. There are none righteous, no, not one. No one's saved by works. We're all saved by grace through faith in Christ. And James is pleading, if it's true of you, won't it be obvious that your life is transformed? And show me your faith in Jesus by the way you live your life. Yeah, that's it. That's what kind of church we have to be. We have to be a church. Not, not, we're not righteous of anything that we've done. It's all Jesus. 
but let's get busy until all the world knows and showing him. Now I have to close. I'm late. Sorry. It's your fault, whoever took that time in the middle. <laughs> Here's the verse. Every person who calls Calvary Bible Church home, this should be part of your, uh, your DNA as a Christian. And I think this ties Paul and James together. It is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10. Over the years, we have described this as constructing Tom Shirk's two testimonies. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of everybody. Not of works. So that no one can boast before God that you have been saved by the works you did so that you got yourself in position that God would say, now you're worthy for heaven, I save you. That's not how it works. The gospel is Jesus died for our sins. He forgives our sins. He comes to live within us and he gives us new life and we get to be a part of his family and go to heaven and live in the power of the Holy Spirit because he saves us by grace. Everybody, just say it. Amen. That's the first testimony. How did you come into the family of God? How did you forsake your sin and become a Christian? I trusted in Christ alone to save me from my sins. Then what? Second testimony, verse 10. Four, I mean, why did God do that for us? What was in God's mind when he saved sinners and rebels like us? It's verse 10. For we are his workmanship. His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for everybody. Good works. He created us, and he recreated us in Christ for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You've been saved to do good, and the good works are the evidence that you have been saved. And if there is no work, you should just ask yourself the question, do I really know Jesus? That's James. As I said, I don't want you to go away fearful unless the Holy Spirit's working in you. And maybe you're not a Christian. You say, my life, I'm, I'm just sinning all over the place. There's no good in my life. I'm just living in sin. Okay then that's a good question you should ask yourself. If I'm living totally in sin, am I a Christian? That's fair. That's fair. Now we all sin, but is the trajectory of my life to rebel against God and to sin? Or when I sin, do I feel conviction? If you if you sinned, and maybe you're in a habit right now, but you feel a great conviction in your heart that you know that's wrong, that's a good thing, that maybe the Holy Spirit's working in you. I think the point you just, we all have to take is we just have to say, Lord, I trust in you. You have forgiven me, and I want your life to be seen in me in the way in which I go. We were created for good works. You with me? Okay. Let's stand together then, and I'm going to close our service in prayer. And I want us to be this kind of a church that says, 
It's Christ alone. And because he saved us, we want to go out into all the world and do good. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God. That's what, that God would be known, that he saves people like us to do good in the world for his glory. Okay. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of listening to the word of God here. And now I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will encourage those who are afflicted, that you will shake up those of us who may be too comfortable, that you may lead us to examine our hearts and affirm together that we trust in Christ alone. And may the difference be that our faith in Jesus translates to a life that brings you honor and glory. Because we've been saved for your glory and the world is waiting to see the grace and love of God, may we all go out to do that. For your honor and glory, we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen.